Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. Today we are joined by economist Gigi Foster, who is immensely passionate about her field and has authored a range of books, including An Economic Theory of Greed, Love, Groups and Networks. More recently, her work has turned to the vast and plentiful economic sins of the COVID pandemic, with books such as The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next, and Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? Gigi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alexandra. Well, firstly, tell our viewers a little bit about you. How did you get into this field? Because it's not usual to find someone so unbelievably passionate and vocal about economics. <laughs> well, that's a funny question. Um, so I guess a lot of your viewers may have a bit of a distorted image of what my discipline is really all about. When I talk to people on the street, they sometimes think that economics is about finance, profit, GDP, and that's it. But that's really not true. When I was in school, I learned that economics basically aims to maximize welfare. It's not money. It's not GDP or profit. It's human welfare that we are trying to go for. So when we make policy recommendations, we are acting on behalf of the people, the whole country, and its welfare optimization is our goal. So when I started seeing, in fact, this happened even before COVID, but certainly during COVID, when I started seeing policies being implemented, which were clearly destructive of welfare, not promoting it, I, I mean, I just felt like it was my ethical obligation to call those out, particularly because I work at a public university financed by taxpayer dollars. So I think I have a bit of a, you know, obligation to be useful to the society. I'm glad you think that way because there are plenty of academics that have no such instinct that they must be useful. Look, economics is often forgotten when we get into the theatre of the culture wars, but really a nation's economy is what underpins its political direction. And when politics fails, when culture fails, it is represented in the collapse of the economy. It's the final straw that collapses and dismantles even the most powerful totalitarian ideology. Now, in this modern world, saturated by identity politics and an obsession with being virtuous, have governments and the so-called activist spiritual leaders forgotten the essential role of economics? Well, you can only forget economics for so long until it comes back to bite you. Um, you know, the thing about economics and economic actors is that they just do not, in the long run, suffer ideologies which are not actually helpful. Um, and, and so we have seen poor ideologies beaten out of countries over time because they simply collapse under their own weight of inefficiency. That was certainly the case in the USSR and the former Soviet republics um, basically just couldn't maintain that level of inefficiency and bureaucratic uh, sclerosis. And, and so the same thing is sort of happening in Australia. You see such huge amounts of resources being plowed into bureaucracies which just aren't productive. They aren't going to survive for Ever. That cannot happen. That is a that is a, a basically time limited game, and it's because people want to get ahead. They want to feed their families. They want to contribute to their societies. And at the end of the day, something that doesn't work will be discarded. That's what innovation delivers us. That's what freedom delivers us. When people are free to think differently and innovate and try experimenting with new ways of doing things, we realize gains to human welfare. And when freedom is not provided to people, then you have stagnation. And stagnation will cause sclerosis in the economy. And eventually, that's just not sustainable. There's too much tension. There's too much um, anguish and, and angst and uh, and things just simply don't work. The society falls behind its peers. And that's what we saw with the USSR. And I really don't want that to happen in Australia. 
Well, what does economics say about the concept of these utopias? Because so much of the politics we see today is driven by the idea of basically creating some kind of ideological utopia. Does economics agree that this exists or does it basically say, no, you can't have a perfect economic utopia? Well, I mean, I don't really know what is meant by a utopia. I suppose we dream of them, but um, in economics, I think a, a money utopia, tree would a money tree would be a utopia as far as labor is <laughs> concerned. Endless, <laughs> endless printed money and wealth. Right. Well, I mean, as Dad always said, money doesn't grow on trees, right? And there's no free lunch. That's attributed to economists as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, that obviously doesn't exist. But people, I, I think you're right that the ideology of today often trumpets these these sort of virtues which are almost unarguable things like you know inclusion for example let's just take that one you know of course we want to be inclusive of course we want to allow anybody who has ideas to try them out and have opportunities to to, to you know try to make a go of it for himself and his family right fine but but the idea that somehow inclusion then also means basically exclusion by implication of a lot of other people or the dominance of that value over a whole bunch of other values that are also helpful in promoting society, like freedom, for example, um, is, is a distortion. And it becomes, again, it's an ideological um, game that's played rather than something that's really useful. So in my, in my sort of, I guess, utopia, what you'd have is people who have different beliefs, different ideologies, able to express them and discuss about them and work out what is the optimal idea to have for human thriving. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, I think about optimal histories, optimal uh, religion, even optimal ideas, because we are people who need abstractions to motivate ourselves. We need to understand, for example, for our own personal well-being, what is it to be an Australian? What is Australia, right? We all have a different idea of what that is. That's an abstraction. You could call it an ideology, you know, people working for what they think Australia stands for. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to prove the worth of your ideology in the real world, which means in economics. And, and when it doesn't prove itself, it will be eventually discarded. It just depends on, you know, how much people fight back to bad ones, how long it'll take. Actually, economics reminds me of a hard wall like we have in the energy sector, where at some point there is no more energy. No matter how much talking you do, you can't make the lights turn on by talking. And economics is the same. You can't make the debt go away just by talking. It has to be resolved. Now, this we're living in a cost of living crisis, let's be honest, and it's happening for a range of reasons. Almost all are self-inflicted by bad policy and short-sighted politicians. Now, citizens feel as if their way of life is diminishing. And now that centers around the basically large hole in their pockets. Do you see economics playing a major role in reshaping the structure of our political landscape in the next 10 years as all of these things come home to roost on us? Well, there's no denying that there will be massive economic consequences, and we're already seeing them from the mismanagement, particularly during the COVID time. But even before then, we saw signs that there were cracks in the in the political economy of the country, which were going to lead to suffering for, unfortunately, the already disadvantaged the most, but also overall welfare uh, was going to be uh, not promoted as much as, as it could be. And I don't think that the problems there are primarily economic. I actually think they're primarily political. I think we have an extremely corrupt political system. Um, I think that basically our politicians are largely just representing themselves rather than truly representing the people. I think many of our institutions and bureaucracies are either unaccountable or in the pockets of industry or both. Um, and so really where I think we need a lot of reform and where we can get some welfare gains reasonably quickly is in the area of reviving a notion of 
civil responsibility, um, the, the obligation, the duty of citizens to actually participate in the polity of their country in order to keep watch, right? What is it? The, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, right? People, people want a free ride on the eternal vigilance part, but I tell you what, just like economics, that will come around to bite you at the end. So I've been advocating for direct democratic revival of various different types to try to target what I see as a political problem mainly. The economics will be there whether we like it or not, but the politics, we can potentially change that with a lot of uh, force from the citizens because there's a lot more of us than there are of the elite. Well, I like to think of the economy as essentially the modern equivalent of the old evolutionary game of hunting for food. We don't pick up spears and go after mammoths anymore, but we do seek out scarce resources in the competitive world. Now, our times of greatest prosperity and also our periods of recovery are usually marked by maximum competition and low regulation. Now, what do you see happening to Australia's economic landscape as it continues to be infested by political goals instead of needs-based outcomes? For example, we have this arrival of the ESG where companies are introducing counterproductive political goals to satisfy global ideology instead of allowing free market solutions for this problem. Absolutely. And you, and you say it perfectly well, which is to highlight the political issues. The economics is there and it's just being ignored at the moment with these kinds of goals like ESG or the 2050 net zero or whatever it's called. These kinds of excuses for extreme interventionism to cause known suffering today in the pursuit supposedly of some uncertain benefit tomorrow, which is predicted by some computer model. You know, I, I don't think that that's a good way to uh, be a steward of Australia and of Australians' wealth. And as you say, the, the free market is actually a pretty reliable provider of welfare as long as it's underpinned with stable and accountable institutions. So really the economics takes care of itself if you get out of the way. But what has unfortunately happened is that the corruption in politics has led to this virtue signaling, ideologically grounded sort of fervor, which then infects a lot of the decisions of economic actors and draws them away from what they would otherwise be. And unfortunately, consumers are drawn right along with that. There are a lot of consumers who will be more likely to buy a canister of fly spray if it has a green leaf on the front than if it doesn't. I mean, that has nothing to do with whether it's actually good for the environment, right? Uh, so people are so easily manipulable by these ideological and virtue signaling trumpet calls, particularly with the social media technology that we have today and the mainstream media being basically captured as well, that uh, turning that Titanic around is a big job. And, and that's, again, one of the reasons why I think we need to revive the, the, the political appetite of the Australian consumer to actually show him he is the one who ultimately determines the the trajectory of his society, because otherwise it'll be determined for him by people who are not going to have his best interests at heart. Uh, the green label is actually a pretty clever marketing gimmick where they can do a markup of 15% just for saying, you're going to be virtuous if you buy this. We're not going to prove it to you, but you will feel virtuous for having the green label. I always like to think of, I'm a programmer by, uh, by trade, I like to think of the economy as being artificially intelligent. And if you let lots of people make independent decisions, they tend to make intelligent decisions and they find solutions that a government can never think of. And that's why we tend to do better. But look, Economics can explain a lot of the motivations of human behavior, but the COVID years brought us something quite different. We saw fear drive economic decisions and it was a disaster. Was enough thought and care taken by Australia's political leaders during COVID to protect the economic soul of our nation? Or was everything in this nation that we've worked for kind of readily sacrificed? 
Yeah, look, and it was it was an amazingly jaw-droppingly unethical period from the perspective of policy. Uh, I mean, I, I just look at what happened and I just am staggered. I think we're going to be dealing with the repercussions of what happened, what was implemented, what was foisted upon people for a generation, and we are not going to see a full reckoning, certainly not with this sham COVID inquiry that's been suggested by Albo, and not even, I think, with the first few years of, uh, of history of having COVID behind us. I think we're going to have to wait for probably five to ten years before we start getting a a really serious look at what happened at the its quantity of damage that was done as you know i've done what i what i think is one of the only comprehensive cost-benefit analyses of lockdown policy in Australia. And I find that the, the cost-benefit ratio is just ridiculous, you know, 68 times as costly as the benefits that could be delivered when you when you lock down a whole healthy population. And I'm working on a paper right now with Paul Friders and Sanjeev Sablock, names you may also know and your, your audience may, um, about the public health uh, attitude towards quarantine and basically how quarantines were outlawed or pretty much seen to be useless by the mid-1800s. And we just forgot about that because the public health bureaucracies find it much more convenient to spruik quarantine than they do to do the simple things like, you know, making sure that we have clean streets and toilets and things that actually save lives. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's been a really edifying period to see how badly corrupted, not just public health has been, but how badly corrupted our whole system can be when fear comes in and when people are captured by that, that crowd mentality that took hold in March 2020 and really hasn't, even now, hasn't released everybody from it. Um, that's a major challenge we have in the society is helping those people who were captured by this nonsense crowd to regain their senses and accept what has actually happened, which is a huge amount of, of health and wealth destruction. Well, most people know that you can't shut an economy down. It's not a computer. It doesn't have a reset button. And like a living creature, economies die if they stop breathing. At the very least, they suffer serious permanent consequences. Now, how did our politicians mm -hmm. overlook the catastrophic consequence of a lockdown. Are they naive? Are they stupid? Did they not care because they can resign and run off? I mean, it seems to me to be an extraordinary amount of recklessness because anybody with any kind of thinking experience of the economy knows that this is going to be a serious problem. And it was never mentioned. They kept saying, oh, we're just going to flatten the curve. It's like, yeah, flatten the curve of the economy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, honestly, if you take yourself back to March and April 2020, what were politicians facing? They were facing a petrified, petrified constituency who were clamoring for something big to be done. And if you've ever watched Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister, <clears throat> you know that that imperative to do something regardless of whether it actually addresses the perceived problem, is the biggest political imperative. Because if you don't, you're going to be out of office. So that period in which our politicians caved to that political pressure to do something that was clearly going to damage the people showed how cowardly and self-serving the political class is in this country. I mean, if there was ever proof needed, <laughs> that's where you have it. Because a strong politician in that situation realizes what's going on, realizes that there's been a mass panic that's taken hold of people and that what they are clamoring for will hurt them. You know, it's sort of like uh, in the lead up to the First World War. Plenty of people wanted to volunteer to go and get slaughtered. And that happened over and over, wave upon wave, until finally the enthusiasm died down. Now, did that mean that those countries should have been like, yeah, let's have war. Yeah, sure. Why not? Because that's what the people want. Well, you're advocating for death. 
You're literally advocating for death. And the same thing with COVID. You're advocating, I mean, those policymakers were advocating for the destruction of Australia's health, wealth, welfare, and economy. And I don't think that any of them, even if they were students of history and had seen how long it takes to rebuild an economy, for example, after the USSR fell, six years or so, that the, those countries were floundering around and uh, unable to get the economy going again because all those links had been destroyed in one fell swoop when the when the curtain fall you know th those kind of historical lessons they might have been available to our australian politicians but they simply weren't thinking about that they were thinking about making sure that they stayed in office well, they should have been. You have those daily press conferences, those infuriating press conferences. They should have included some kind of disclaimer, you know, we're going to keep you safe, inverted commas, but by the way, roughly 20% of you will lose your businesses, most of you end up unemployed, you're going to have a housing crisis shortly after, then you're going to be really, really broke for the next 15 years. Just so you know, putting it out there, you can make an informed choice. That would have been a responsible government, and I bet you support would have been a little lower if that had been the consequence. But it's very easy for a government to completely screw up an economy. There are endless historical examples of it happening and we're going to add Australia to that list. But fixing this mess is not easy. Attempting to top-down micromanage an injured economy usually makes it worse. Now, would the best thing for the government to do be to lower restriction, restrictions, make it easier for people to set up businesses and employ people, lower taxes from economy-driving functions and then, you know, bugger off and let people fix up the mess made by politicians. Yeah, I mean, the way we like to say this is get government to focus back on its core business. Yeah, I mean, we have such overreach in so many different areas, and it's directly damaging the very priorities of the government trumpets. So I mean, just one example would be childcare policy. Um, I had my kids in the U.S., and there it's pretty easy to find childcare of all sorts of different kinds. There's institutionalized childcare, there's family daycare, there's all sorts of different types to suit different families depending on their needs, right? And of course, that means that you are doing three things. One, you're enabling the people who who want to get back to work, who are young parents, to do so. Secondly, you're providing an enriching environment for a child that the parents can choose because they have a lot of options. That's why consumers are, you know, happier and more better off when they have a lot of different choices in the market. And thirdly, you're creating employment for the people who are taking care of those kids. Here in Australia, we've had a childcare crisis for 10 years. You can't find family daycare. Why? Because the red tape is ridiculous. I mean, I've even considered, at, well, some point in my past, becoming a childcare provider because I love kids so much, but I looked at how bad it would be just to try to open a family daycare place. And I just thought, well, no, thank you. So that is, of course, what people will do when faced with so much regulation. They will either give up or, you know, do something else, which may not be necessarily their first choice. I mean, it is my first choice to have, be an economist, but, you know, maybe when I get to be 65, I'd like to have daycare, you know, as an option to do. But in this kind of regulatory environment, it strangulates that stuff. Same thing with adoptions. There's only a few adoptions every year. There used to be thousands before the state got involved. And would they say that's good for child welfare? I mean, do, do we really believe that? Same thing with public health, I hate to say. A lot of public health dollars are not actually increasing public health. If you if you track the public health expenditure gains, that is you know, quite significant between maybe 4% of GDP and about 20% of GDP in the US over the last 30 or 40 years, and the life expectancy gains, 
Well, there haven't been life expectancy gains. Life expectancy has actually gone backward for the last couple of years, and it really hasn't gone up much even before that. So what are we getting for all this expenditure? So I absolutely agree. I think that the government should get out of the way for the most part. Let the man on the street who has the local signals decide what's best for himself and his family and let the government do the, the job of providing a stable, boring environment which will support investment and economic opportunity for everybody. Yeah, at this point in time, I think I'd rather allow businesses to put an at-own-risk sign at the front of the business and the government to just back away because some of the regulations that people have to go through just to sell coffee these days, you think that they were organising some kind of army to invade a foreign nation, the amount of regulation they have to go through. It's absolutely ridiculous. But look, I'll give you an example of what Labor's currently doing in New South Wales to try and you know, recover from the economic disaster from COVID. We live on one of the oldest dirt roads in New South Wales, I'm talking from basically settlement, it's still gravel. It's the alternate route to the highway and every piece of legislation says it must be tarred. Okay, so the money was finally approved and this time it wasn't stolen and they've started the project. They're a third of the way through. Labor just cancelled it a third of the way through, deleted the money and now wants another environmental study. We've had dozens of those already. Now this is happening to infrastructure projects all around the state in critical eras. It seems to me that Labor is stealing money from parts of the economy that helps to create business and is giving it as cash handouts to voters to buy popularity. Now surely this is not a good way to fix the economy. No, absolutely. I don't think fixing the economy has been the objective for many years now, honestly. It has very much been about image. Again, partly because what we have at the moment in office are career politicians. You know, it used to be the case that politicians had a real job before they went into politics. You know, they were a lawyer or a farmer or a teacher or something. So they had some believable constituency, some perspective from a real group in society that would be affected by their policies. Now we have people in office who don't really know what it's like to be on the street at all. It goes back to Margaret Thatcher's question, do you know how much a stick of butter costs? You know, and, and that sort of lack of compassion for his fellow man that a politician now exhibits in his policymaking is just, I mean, again, for me, it's jaw-dropping, it's unethical, and it's emblematic, unfortunately, of the broader society, where we often are told to distrust our fellow man, and we aren't ever encouraged to truly find compassion. We are encouraged to signal our compassion, but not to truly be compassionate. And certainly the politicians are leading the charge in demonstrating lack of compassion in their policies. Well, how did you feel about uh, Jim, let's reimagine capitalism charmers? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, look, I, I honestly don't like to, you know, throw any particular politician under the bus. I do think as a behavioral economist that there's a lot of social elements to what goes on. People get away with what they can get away with, given the culture of the time. And, and certainly, you know, Jim is not immune to that. Philip Lowe took more than his share of the blame for the, the woes of the COVID policymaking. And this is the way that public opinion goes. It will occasionally turn its hydra head towards a particular person. And then other times, a person who is totally culpable will be completely left alone. And, and that's just the way of, of, uh, of the tide of politics. And unfortunately, again, the politicians have to pay attention to that if they want to stay in office. I would hope that some politicians would start maybe reimagining their own careers and think, okay, I'll be a politician for a little while, but then I'll go get a real job. How about that? That would be a kind of cool thing. <laughs> I, I think that's wishful thinking. I don't think uh, real jobs are what they're after. They do, however, love those cozy positions they find on those international bureaucracies where they get to sip champagne for a while and shake a lot of hands in the back rooms of power. But that's about as close to doing hard work as you're going to find. Now, look, do governments have to be 
careful about the sort of behaviour that they incentivize through economics. Because if, for example, they overtax productive behaviour and reward people who don't work, could this bleed through into the behaviour of the whole economy? Because humans aren't stupid. If they can get something for free, they're definitely going to go and do that instead. Absolutely. No, this is very true. So whenever you give uh, an incentive for something like a subsidy or you tax something, which is essentially potentially changing somebody's behavior, you do have to worry about the longer run consequences on equilibrium in that market. So we in economics, we like to say that taxation, which is least distortionary, is preferable. So if we are going to tax at all, we should be taxing things in ways that don't actually distort people's behavior away from what they would already be doing. This is one of the reasons why most economists support a, an unimproved land tax rather than stamp duty and transaction-based taxes. Because if you tax unimproved land, you're not going to distort buying and selling decisions at all, but you could if you tax the buying and the selling. So that's one example, but there are many other examples where what the economy will naturally go towards could be impeded by a government intervention. And of course, in some cases, we may wish, we may think that that's a good thing. For example, you may think that some sin taxes are a good idea. Some people like the idea that we would tax cigarettes, for example, because they think there are externalities to do with smoking and they want to protect other people from smoking, you know, related externalities like breathing in secondhand smoke. And so they make cigarettes very expensive by having a tax and then that deters that behavior. So that's an example of a Extortionary tax that some economists would think is a good idea. But many taxes and many uh, subsidies or other things, particularly in the area of energy and, and the green transition and all of this stuff, those actions of government are distorting the economy away from it from what it would normally be likely to do. And of course, we are likely to discover new ways of making cheaper, cleaner energy, right? I mean, that's not something that we don't have a natural incentive to do. Companies do have an incentive. It is not like the government's job is to encourage that to happen. That will happen naturally in the economy through the mechanism that you described, which we call the invisible hand. Everybody trying to get ahead, finding new ways to, to please the market, to get a, get a one-up over their competitors. And so, of course, we will find new battery technology. We will discover more efficient engines. We will do all these things without the government standing over us with a whip. Um, so, you know, I, I agree. There are definitely serious distortionary effects, which a government that is truly responsible and is thinking about the long-term health of the economy would consider. But I, I don't frequently find those sorts of uh, effects being considered uh, by politicians who are making these policies. No, I mean, you've got to be super careful about what you decide to do, what you decide to incentivize. But look, let's talk about micromanaging economic behavior for the greater good, because the greater good is essentially what is being used with so many of these technologies. Now, you, you're quite right with your previous discussion. The economics is a way that human civilization for so many years has preferenced good ideas over bad ideas. If something is not economically viable, it's generally a bad idea for the most part. It's not a perfect philosophy, but it's a very good philosophy. And that's why we have government that says, hang on, that cheap thing you're doing, that's going to destroy life as we know it. You can't do that anymore. But that's rare. Most of the time you should leave it alone. Now, sometimes I feel as if this greater good thing might just be a, you know, a money grab disguised as the greater good. Now, you had a discussion I saw online about sugar taxes, for instance, which has been re-emerging because the UK has got it and Australia is kind of thinking about it again. Now, I would say that's also a little bit cruel, don't you reckon? Everyone's depressed, they're all buying chocolate bars and now they're going to start taxing chocolate bars more. That seems a bit nasty. <laughs> 
But people are asking themselves, are these genuine public health incentives or is this just economic policy preying on people's weaknesses to drag out a few extra tax dollars and then they're saying, oh, no, it's for the greater good. Don't worry. We've got your best interests at heart. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, the ability to say that and get people hooked into believing it has skyrocketed since basically the last probably 40 or 50 years. Um, and for a whole bunch of reasons that we probably don't have time to go into. But certainly it preys upon the idea that we in Australia should all be for the greater good of Australia. And so anything that you can tether to that, even if it doesn't have a rational mechanism to be tethered, you can get away with, right, if the people are kind of dumb enough to swallow it. Um, and so sugar taxes are a great example. The whole sort of pitch is that if we tax sugar, then people will get less fat, right? That's kind of how it's pitched. Somehow that they, you know, people eat too much sugar, they get fat, and therefore don't we want to save people from getting fat? So let's like tax the sugar so they don't have as much sugar and they won't get fat. Well, the first problem is that obesity is generally, in most cases, 90 plus percent of cases, it's not a physical health problem. It is a mental health problem. It is a problem of not having the mental resources available to some people like us who have cushy jobs and plenty of money and a supportive family and a good mental attitude to be able to choose healthy food and exercise, <laughs> right? People, as you say, who are more depressed tend to eat worse. They're depressed. That's a mental health problem, right? So trying to address a mental health problem with economic measures like taxing the thing that these poor people are trying to, you know, reach for in their stress is, I think, exactly as you say, cruel, particularly when that depression may have come about because of the previous economic policy or mismanagement of that policy that the same self-same politicians delivered. Um, so what has happened in empirical evidence with sugar taxes is that they haven't brought down obesity rates. They have brought in some revenue and they have to an extent reduced the sales of the things that have been taxed. But of course, it's very difficult to tax every single thing on the supermarket shelves that has added tax, added sugar, right? I mean, there's sugary drinks and there's chocolate bars, but what are you going to do about like flavored milk, for example, right? Or a packaged food, which has a little bit of sugar in it. I mean, what are those things? Are they going to be subjected to the tax? What about McDonald's? You know, there's so many other little intricacies. And this just shows, again, the more complex the intervention, the more difficult it's going to be to implement. And and really, are we going to see a huge bang for that buck? That becomes very expensive as an intervention. And because it's not addressing the core root of the problem, which is mental health problems, I don't think it's going to have any influence. And, and we've, again, seen no influence on actual health. We've only seen influence on, uh, you know, tax take. It's also possibly not even the government's business, to be honest. There are some things where the government shouldn't really have an opinion on. It's, it's just not their job. But, and also, it's not just that people eat sugar. This is so recently in history, humans have been starving for almost all of their evolution. We are suddenly put into this existence where we don't have to do much physical work and we've got lots of calories. Well, of course, obesity is going to be the major response to that. We just need time to adapt to how we live in this new reality. And I don't think sugar taxes are the way forward, if I'm being perfectly honest. But another example of this greater good, and I'm curious as to whether you've changed your mind on this uh, now that different things have happened, you've got smoking. Now, vaping is well known to help people break dependency on smoking. A lot of studies have happened. Many people say, yes, I gave up smoking by taking up vaping, then I can give up vaping later on, which they do. So what does the government do? The government bans vaping and raises the taxes on smoking, making sure that people remain trapped in a profitable tax. Am I being too cynical here? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, as I said before, I think some economists would support the smoking tax. Um, 
I think it's a bit high in Australia, to be honest. Even if there is going to be one, it's it's quite punitive. And and whether or not vaping is is a good idea or not, I mean, particularly when you're dealing with young people, I think there is potentially a, a role maybe in schools and information and stuff and, and reaching out to parents. But, you know, I'm pretty libertarian-minded. And I think for adults to be subjected to such punitive taxes for any kind of individual behavior yeah it's a bit it's a bit rich um so yeah i mean i i think it's another example where it's not clearly core business of the government the government has so many things that it could do better that are in its core business how about just doing that right in the first place and then we'll think about everything else yeah, I agree. I think the government plays in too many fields and people start losing faith, particularly when you've got heroin injecting sites next to preschools and yet you can't smoke. Explain that. No one understands that. But look, you said in previous interviews that inflammatory, the inflammatory nightmare that we're currently living through was created through fiscal means, not monetary means. What did you mean by that? Well, so during the lockdowns, which were themselves ill-advised, we embarked upon this huge fiscal stimulus package of JobKeeper and other things, which, of course, became a massive rort as it went on and on. And there were no proofs required of continuing necessity of, of having those JobKeeper payments by employers. And so, I mean, I was an initial supporter of JobKeeper when it first came on because I thought from an ethical standpoint, you can't tell people that they can't work for a living and then make them stay home and have no money. So the government does have a bit of an obligation to make sure people can eat due to the government's own mismanagement. I mean, the whole thing shouldn't have happened, but if that was going to happen, then I did support JobKeeper at the start. But it just lasted for so long and it became such a roar and so expensive that, uh, you know, we, we created a situation in which there was very little or probably if nothing, no no growth in economic activity and, and possibly a decrease, significant decrease, if you don't count JobKeeper as part of GDP, which was counted, by the way. Um, but there was huge amount of, of money being injected into the economy. And so that is going to create an inflationary situation. You've got too much money for the amount of economic activity happening. That's almost definitionally the kind of mix that you require in order to see price rises. And so, of course, we have seen price rises. Now, do I think that Philip Lowe had no role in this by keeping rates so low for so long? Eh, you know, he probably isn't, you know, wasn't the best kind of um, steward of the of the monetary situation during that time. But he was certainly no worse than all of the premiers <laughs> and and possibly, you know, most of the health bureaucrats. So he would not be on my top 10 list of problem people during the COVID policymaking debacle. Uh, so yeah, I think it was mainly about fiscal uh, measures. And I think, you know, people now kind of know that. I honestly think when people are on the street, they're asked, you know, what exactly, what caused this inflation? Uh, was all the job keeper, all the money that got injected into everybody's accounts while we were just sitting around twiddling our thumbs? Well, it's not just that, and I rarely hear it spoken about, but what we did with JobKeeper uh, is we paid the lowest wage workers more than they normally get to sit around and do nothing. And we paid people who have enormous costs to keep their families afloat less than they normally get. So we saw this wealth redistribution where the people who could no longer maintain their basic lifestyles through no, no fault of their own were losing assets and losing homes and losing everything. Whereas people who had not yet entered the, the long job climb and didn't have the experience, well, they now overvalue the price of their 
their work. They think they're worth more than they really are, which in an economy is really dangerous because it creates a lazy class of people and then a class who are completely disillusioned. They think, well, I've lost everything. Why did I bother? I'm never running a business again. And that just creates the worst possible economic scenario. I mean, I've heard, I, I know somebody who lost a third generation business. They are never going to start a business again. They've gone, you know what? I'm out. I'm just going to take the pension and move on. Is this created a, a yeah. long-term issue for economics in this country? Oh, yeah. So one of the cost areas that we don't quantify directly in my uh, CBA, my cost benefit analysis of lockdown policies, but that we mentioned because it's so clearly important is the perpetuation of bad habits. We, we got into really bad habits. Different people, depending on their circumstances during the COVID lockdowns, got into different types of bad habits, which unfortunately are hard to break. Right? That's just a sort of truism of the human condition. And so now I think we do see a lot of young people who got somewhat uh, used to those payments coming in regularly for not doing very much, feeling that, oh, well, you know, I've saved up maybe a few thousand dollars now. I'll go and, you know, live with my mom for a while or I'll go travel the world a bit instead of entering the labor force or going to school because, I, you know, or maybe I'll take a job, but I don't really feel like working very hard because, you know, I shouldn't have to kind of thing. They've gotten used to being uh, you know, less motivated, less um, having less of a work ethic. And that, of course, is bad for the economy. And it's bad also for them psychologically in the longer run. It's not that I think everybody should be working 50-hour weeks, far from it. But everyone needs to have a way in which they can contribute to their community, to their family, to their society is valued clearly and explicitly. And, and typically the way in which we demonstrate that value, apart from you know gratitude within the home for people who do housework, for example, is through money. So we pay people to do work <laughs> and, and we don't pay the people who don't work as much. That's how we demonstrate that somebody's efforts are being valued. And that gives you a psychological boost as well to feel that you know the, the world values you, you are needed, you are worth something. And if we don't give that to our young people, then I mean, woe betide them when they get to be 40. What, what will they think? Oh, in my first 20 years of adult life, I just sort of was selfish and just goofed off. I mean, that's that's a pretty horrible thing to, to saddle a, a middle-aged person with, right? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised, in fact, that we haven't seen more, we didn't see more suicides during the COVID period. We are unfortunately seeing some now. Um, some of them, I think, are delayed deaths of despair, similar kinds of stories that you were just telling. So yeah, I think bad habits are a big problem, but not really quantifiable technically. I mean, that's just on the bleeding edge of what economics can possibly do to quantify that sort of damage. Similarly with trust. We don't trust the public health system anymore. We don't trust government anymore. We often don't trust each other anymore. You know, the COVID policy debate has divided families and professions right down the middle. So there's been a loss of interpersonal ease of interaction. That's a huge cost. It's a huge amount of damage. And we'll be repairing that for many, many years. Well, it's back to the mammoth problem, isn't it? If, uh, you know, if you go hunting mammoths, you expect to eat and you're happy to feed the person who can't go and hunt for themselves if there's something wrong with them. But if there's a, a person sitting there every afternoon eating the mammoth and never hunting, well, they're going to get kicked out of the tribe eventually and have to go and do a bit of work on their own because no one's going to work for them in the long run. Now, disrupting supply chains is something that we just don't talk about enough. It's a genuine error from the pandemic lockdowns and it cannot be fixed very easily because they're complicated. They're incredibly bespoke and they're reliant on hundreds of things going right at so many countries in the world. It's a, it's a genuinely huge disaster. And it creates, as you said, real rises in prices that cannot be fixed by playing around with the cash rate. Now, 
It now costs more cash to get goods from A to B. There are fewer suppliers. It costs more for those suppliers to grow things thanks to net zero policy. The petrol to transport them has grown up, uh, has gone up, and the energy to store them has nearly tripled. Now, these are real brick walls to economic recovery. And, you know, and Labor's then gone and added employee reforms to make sure that no one can then go and employ anybody to sell anything that makes it there. This is such a huge mess. It's so hard to explain how big a problem this is. Is this all a result of COVID lockdowns, essentially? Did that cause this problem? A lot of those problems, yes, were caused by lockdowns. And again, it's, it's a set of consequences which were simply not acknowledged at all. And by the way, when they were acknowledged or when they were brought up, which that was like the first thing that I was worried about was supply chains disintegrating. When we started locking down, I thought, oh my gosh, right, we're going to be we're going to be destroying people's upstream and downstream links, and that takes forever to rebuild. And, and if you mentioned this, you were called a granny killer, and I can testify to that myself, right? Neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior, granny killer, piece of human excrement, right? Go back to, to your, you know, Yankee past. You know, all these things were just all emotional, all emotive, vitriolic epithets levied at me because I dared to think about the consequences of these policies that were being implemented completely without precedent by policymakers who were clearly just following political incentives rather than trying to promote the health of their population, which is what the flag was that they were wrapping these policies in. So yes, I, that is a huge problem and we're still recovering from it. And I mean, go overseas, ask some of the developing countries how they're doing now, right? These poor people who used to be having at least the hope of being able to trade their wares for some money and some other goods from overseas now don't have nearly as much opportunity to do that. And of course, we know that trade is the method of getting out of poverty. It's the method that China used. It's the method that India used, right? It's the method that Africa would like to use more of. Um, there is some possibility of trading within the African countries, but an awful lot of help could be given by first world nations like Australia offering their business to African countries. And of course, the more we don't trade and, and disrupt our supply chains and cause people to have to pay more costs to do any kind of trade, the less that's going to happen. It's simple incentives, again. So yes, I mean, in terms of how long these things take to rebuild, well, again, I would point to the USSR in 1991, that uh, United Federation, uh, if we want to call it that, fell. And that, in one fell swoop, disintegrated all of the links that had been in place because of the central command, basically, dictating how much was going to be made by which countries, factories of which kinds of goods. But as soon as that goes away, then all of these factories, the factory owners, have to rediscover what they should be making based on signals in the market. How do we even get those signals? And who else could I use to supply the things that I need? It takes a long time to search out the answers to all those questions. In their case, it took about six years. So, I mean, I, I was in Moscow in 1995, and I saw the primitivization. I saw saw the, the desperation of those times for those people. Um, now, of course, you know, it's, it's better. But it, in Australia, we are definitely still seeing the effects of that under the surface and not talked about. But it will, of course, be a completely disrupted, changed economy that we are now going to have going forward compared to what we had pre-COVID. Well, critically, you said offer trade, not offer aid. That is a really important distinction to make when it's talking about the, the health of both countries involved in this decision. Now, I mean, you can look at the, uh, the old Silk Roads and read the ancient stories. When you had one little uh, civilization at the top of northern Africa suddenly vanish and they were making copper, well, that had flow-on effects for the entire Silk Road all the way back. It, it's, a, it's a cause and effect thing that you have to be super careful about. 
but you've been doing a lot of work with fellow dissident Ajay Bhattacharya, who spent the pandemic trying to warn people and is now spending his time explaining what happened to shocked audiences. Tell us about your book, The Great COVID Panic. What happened and what are we supposed to do next? Obviously, without spoiling your uh, your book. <laughs> Well, this book actually came out in uh, 2021, so some of your uh, listeners may perhaps have already read it, um, but essentially it, it tells the story from a broad social science perspective of the, what the subtitle says. What happened, first of all? Why did it happen? And then what should we do next? So what happened is told through the eyes of three different protagonists who are archetypes of the kinds of different reactions we saw in Australia and overseas to the, the madness as it unfolded. We have uh, the scared population member who is named Jane in the book, uh, who basically is the one who clamors for protection from COVID from her politicians. And she's the one to whom the politicians then cave. So in some sense, she's the, you know, the, the patient zero in the, uh, in the infection that is the COVID madness. But of course, she herself became infected by the global media, by listening to all the fear stories and all the hype and, and, su and such, and such and such. So then we have, the James character. James is kind of the classic economic opportunist. He will look at any situation that's unfolding, even if it's, you know, fanatical fear that he's seeing all around him and think, what can I do to profit for myself here? He's kind of the person who exists in most of our models of the economy. And so he, he was in business, he was in government, he was all sorts of places. Politicians, of course, were James, right? How can I get ahead? How can I establish myself, increase my status and my power? Uh, you might think of uh, Brett Sutton, for example, you know, national sex symbol for a while during those COVID uh, broadcasts, right? Um, so those kinds of people, but also in companies, right, who would say, oh, I can provide PPE to governments in crisis. Sure, I've never done it before, but let me show you how I can deliver 6,000 gowns, you know, that sort of thing. And so then we had finally Jasmine, who was the skeptic who was looking at all of this unfold in March, uh, that was, of course, my co-authors and myself, so Paul Friders, Michael Baker, and me, and growing numbers of people around the country and around the world now, who sort of realized, oh, wait a minute, something is going mildly, no, seriously, oh, oh, unprecedentedly wrong. And we initially thought we were the ones going crazy, right? But then we consulted and sort of, you know, was saying, okay, am I, is, is everything okay up here? Am I dreaming? No, no, okay, I'm not going crazy, the world's going crazy, right, what can I do now? And what we thought we could do was write a book, so we did. Uh, and we then have chapter by chapter, we go through the economics, the health, the psychology, the politics of what's behind this horrible response. And then we end with some ideas about what to do next, where we do venture in uh, in kind of our early thoughts about how to revive direct, direct democracy, which is, as I say, something I think we could definitely uh, work on here in Australia. And, and I think it's something that even local communities can uh, sink their teeth into because it's something that is within their grasp, within their power. You know, so much of this seems outside the purview of the individual man on the street, but political voice, that's every person's responsibility. Well, I mean, I wanted to ask you this because we've got this problem where the next generation, well, not even the next generation, maybe two and a half generations worth of children have a serious ignorance and misunderstanding about economic systems. They believe that socialism is effectively a free iPhone. They think collectivism is the way to prosperity. They've been told by the eco-fascist regimes of Europe that the, the climate is being killed by capitalism and communism is the answer, even though communist nations are the biggest polluters on earth. Now, surely such a generation 
will struggle to launch an economic recovery if they think communism is the way forward. And also, they've been indoctrinated with this Marxist idea that work is slavery and that working for an employer, employer is somehow, you know, it's something they have to do to make a living, but they really resent it. So there's no joy in creating new things and building a life of economic prosperity. They think that that's an inconvenience to their uh, Netflix and chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, I have a couple of kids in their 20s and uh, and they just, um, you know, they bemoan the attitudes amongst their cohort about these these kinds of matters. You know, where does happiness come from? We have, have people forgotten to tell their kids happiness comes from building strong relationships and contributing to your world. I mean, and loving yourself, you know, being confident and trying things out, experimenting, grabbing life by the horns and, and doing what you can to, to, you know, milk it for all the joy and all the giving that you can get. Um, you know, giving to others is the way that you become free and you become happy. We just don't say that anymore, right? And there's there's this selfishness, this, this creeping selfishness has been creeping in for quite a while, I would say probably since the early 2000s, into the culture. And now we've just overwritten all of those kinds of, I guess you might call them more traditional ideals. I just see them as kind of pro-human ideals about, you know, what is it that, that makes a, a health, healthy and happy person and a, and a healthy and happy society. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I really appreciate still having a job at UNSW, thank you very much to my employer, is uh, after all this time is that I can still teach. And this term, I'm teaching three classes, you know, so I'm teaching hundreds of students and I can give them an alternative vision. I can, you know, I can talk about exactly what I'm, I'm talking with you now about in terms of COVID policy mistakes and have them think about it themselves. You know, I, I try not to shove anything down their throats, but just give them an alternative viewpoint and, and something that challenges the prevalent ideology on campus, you know, even on campus at UNSW, we see all the socialist alternative posters. I never see a libertarian poster. Or you know a, a conservative poster, uh, you only ever see the socialist alternative ones. And the economist students, I think, often take the position that a lot of sort of the the quiet majority of Australians take, which is, well, look, I'm not going to engage with that because it seems a bit silly, but I'll just put my head down and and do my thing. The problem is, you may be disinterested in politics, but politics is not disinterested in you. And if you do not take a stand and speak out against damaging ideologies, you are essentially an accessory. And, and that is something that we also have to start, I think, teaching people as a whole is, look, those who can must try to resist. We must, because otherwise the power, which it has, we've seen an example of that just recently with COVID, the power will be taken and used to abuse us. And if you want to have that happen again to your kids, then fine, just sit there and have a barbecue. But, you know, if you don't, then join the resistance and restoration movement for the sake of your children. Yes, I've always preferred the terminology a restoration rather than a revolution. I think it's more on spirit with the libertarian movement. Now, in the spirit of freedom, you have a conference coming up in Sydney being held from the 17th of November through to the 19th called Progress Through Science and Freedom. Tell us, what is this about? So this is the inaugural conference of Australians for Science and Freedom, which is a new think tank that I have co-founded with a number of others from across the professions in the resistance and restoration community in Australia. You can see it at scienceandfreedom.org. That, that domain name was available, believe it or not. Um, and we are having this conference at UNSW. UNSW is generously donating the rooms and, uh, and helping to sponsor the conference. And we're bringing together leaders in the movement from across the country, again, in multiple different 
fields. So media, you're going to be there. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Uh, and health and economics and politics and law and education. All of these areas are going to have special sessions. And we're very lucky that Matt Wong from Discernible is going to be helping us with the tech and TNT Radio is going to be there doing interviews and spruiking it. Um, so it's very, very exciting. You'll see all the information on our website and you can still register. In fact, we still have early bird rates available for another couple of days, I think. Uh, we tried to make the registration fee very manageable. So it's not covering our costs because we want the community to engage. We even have student rates for uh, for students who may find, you know, even a hundred bucks a bit too much. So, you know, please come, please spread the word amongst everybody. Uh, I think this is the way in which we can work together to exchange ideas about how to rebuild Australia's institutions, uh, to imagine new ways of doing things, new ways of providing public health, new ways of defending human rights and freedom, uh, new ways of providing education. So that's what we need if we want a better society. Yes, well, shock horror, it's actually encouraging debate and conversation rather than censorship and uh, propaganda. So well done. I mean, this is what universities really need. That is provided you're allowed to go ahead and you don't have the socialist alternative show up. But I think you'll be fine. And look, everybody should come. It's going to be a wonderful conference. And it's the, it's the thing we need right now is to have these discussions because we need to process and heal and learn from the mistakes that we made so that we don't make them again in short order. Now, I've seen you use the phrase team sanity a few times. Do we need more sanity to be brought back into Australia's political and economic thinking? Oh, so much. I mean, common sense has been the rarest commodity over the last few years, uh, and, uh, and virtue signaling has taken its place. So absolutely, I think we need common sense. We need people to speak up with sane, commonsensical ideas and, and be courageous, you know, back yourself. This is something that Australians don't tend to be that great at. But I tell you what, if there was ever a moment in history when we need to learn to do it, it's right now. Back yourself with your notion of sanity and sense making and something that's useful. Give us useful thoughts, useful ideologies, useful institutional ideas, useful practical solutions. That is what the country desperately, desperately needs. And look, we've only got a couple of minutes here, but I did want to ask you, we've had COVID, we've had lockdowns. Now, is net zero going to be the next econ economy wrecking ball that comes through public policy? Well, I mean, it's already wrecking quite a lot, I think. And I don't know if you were there at the, the recent seminar given by William Happer, who was flown over from Princeton University. But he was a, a wonderful voice for sanity, actually, in science, talking about how if CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere even double, we don't theoretically get an increase in the temperature of the uh, the planet. So, you know, even this basic foundational principle of the, the uh, climate warriors may be wrong. And if you accept that and, and you also recognize the corruption in science, which is prevalent, I can tell you as a scientist, not just in social science, but also in the hard sciences and definitely in medical science, then you should start questioning whether or not these scare campaigns actually have any validity to them. Now, even if the climate is changing, is it due to our actions or not? And if it's already changing, well, how about adapting to it? How about putting some effort into figuring out what will happen to humanity if things change? And therefore, how can we live differently? Rather than punishing people today for some uncertain reward in the future, which by the way, looks an awful lot like the lockdown policies. So it's the same playbook, just with a different flavor. So please, please try to resist this and, and be critical about such ideologies when they come screaming at you through the mainstream media. More likely than not, there's a power play underneath it. It's not really about virtue, it's really about power. And where can people find you if they want to follow more of your wonderful work? 
Oh, thanks, Alexandra. Well, I mean, honestly, scienceandfreedom.org is probably the best place. I also have an author profile on Brownstone Institute. Uh, Brownstone is the publisher of The Great COVID Panic and uh, a wonderful libertarian think tank in the United States. It's just brownstone.org. Uh, I also have a UNSW staff page, but I don't keep it updated much. And I try to stay off social media. Um, but people can reach me on any number of, uh, you know, email channels if they do a little bit of research, do a little work, and I'll definitely try to respond. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today on Marshall Live. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alexandra. And that's all we have time for. See you next week.